It begins like this. And eventually, after years and years, hours and hours and hours and hours of practice, may become something like this. Casey Simba Torres is a professional musician and a music teacher. She teaches in a style of music instruction called the Suzuki Method. It's where kids begin learning at a very early age, two or three or four, and they learn by listening, listening over and over, and then imitating what they hear with their own instruments. This method also emphasizes heavy parental involvement. Parents and children are learning together. Parents sit through each lesson and each practice, encouraging, providing little corrections here and there, but supporting their child and nurturing them as they become musicians. Casey and her husband, Juan, have two children, ages 6 and 10. Their children are also musicians. So Casey grew up learning music from her mother, a music teacher, became a music teacher, and is now a music mom. In our interview, we talk about the value of learning music early and the role that parents play in supporting kids. Casey also talks about her hopes for her own tremendously talented children and reflects on the ways that parenting has changed her. Casey runs a private music studio and plays violin professionally in a local symphony and at many weddings, churches, and other formal events. For those of you who read my post earlier this week, it's clear that this interview is a little bit autobiographical, and this conversation with Casey has helped me reflect on the way that the activities I choose for my children shape them, but also shape me as a parent. Thanks so much for listening to Parenting Reimagined. My name is Casey. Actually, I go by Casey. My full name is Camila, and I live in uh, good old California with my husband, Juan, and I have two lovely children, ages 10 and 6. I am a professional musician and a music teacher. My earliest recollection of teaching is um, junior high. I I was told to take, I played with the high school orchestra, and I was told to take the second violins and to another room and teach them their part. And I remember being deathly afraid, but I did it. So, and ever since then, I got the bug of teaching. I love teaching. I taught for 10 years in the public school system. Um, and I always had some private students um, on the side. When I started having children, I kind of phased out of public school system. And I grew my private studio to the point where I needed to move it out of my home. And so now I have a little place in the center of town where I live and it's called Simba School of Music, and all my students come there, and I 
it's the best it's the best job ever. I really am enjoying it. So having children meant a vocational change for you. Children really really changed my um yeah, my vocation quite a bit. And I you know, when I went to school as a music education major, I always thought well, this is what I'm gonna do and I, I loved it. And I did love my job. And I moved to three different districts, you know, until my husband found the job where he is now and then I found another job and I found the best music teacher job ever. A lot of music teachers have to travel from school to school. And I got a job at a charter school and I was at one school all day long and I had the band room slash um, office side, it was off the, uh, what do you call it, the stage, so I was off the stage and it was way on the edge of campus and I had my own parking spot and I had uh, little practice rooms next to my office I had a big window. I mean, it was the best music job you could ever. And so it was really hard for me to let that go. But in the end, it was the best decision I ever made. I really, really wanted to be the one that took my children to school and picked them up and um, be in the classroom. And I now that I can do that, I volunteer at each of my children's schools. I volunteer, let's see, two hours in each of their classes every week. So it's like four, four to five hours in the classrooms to help every week and I love it so it was really a really great change for me I've really enjoyed talking with lots of different families about how kids have reorganized their their careers in you know in good ways usually right so hmm. yeah it was good I was really happy about it not to mention that no one told me what to do anymore. As soon as I, as soon as I was working for myself, I didn't have to go to those stupid meetings about math scores and testing. And I just all I had to do was go to work, and I open the door, and I shut the door, and I make my schedule. And and all of those parents would come to me. Those kids really want to be there. And those parents that really value music education, and it was it's really good. You teach and parent and were raised yourself with the Suzuki method of music education. Yeah. Would you describe that, just describe that a little bit? Sure. So the Suzuki method um, was developed by a man named Suniki Suzuki uh, in Japan. And his, he actually, in a nutshell, he developed this program. He wanted to bring, um, after the war, he wanted the Japanese children to be um, to have more heart and have be happy because they were, I guess he saw them as being very sad. So he wanted them to be happy. And he felt that every child was capable of of producing beautiful music. And I guess the best way to describe it is the Suzuki method is based on what's called the mother tongue method, which means we don't, we as Suzuki teachers, we don't teach reading at the very beginning. We as, as if the, new, the mother tongue method is like the way of speaking. So when a child learns how to speak, they learn it from listening to their mother or, you know, their family. And they learn by repetition, by listening, and then they start speaking. And so he developed the teaching of a musical instrument, so that was violin, and they would listen, and they would um, listen repetitively, they would watch other people play, and then they would learn to play their instrument 
in that sense. And then the reading came early. And that's the biggest difference, I guess, between um, the Suzuki method and then your traditional teaching methods. His big principles were like starting much earlier than what people thought kids could start. Lots of listening. Um, again, that constant repetition of listening and watching. And then he also wanted children to play with each other. So more of a community and a group feeling. Um, and the parent was supposed to be a big, because they're so young, he also wanted the parents to be a big part of this, of this learning process. Children can start in this method at age two or three, four? Yeah, two or three, yeah. And they have, uh, they call them pre-twinkles. But yeah, they can start quite early. And it's amazing. You see some of these kids, some of my students, they're quite amazing for their little tiny violins and cellos that they play. But it's all about the method that's used, that Suzuki method. It's very, very thought out and methodical, exactly what to do next and, and how to make it happen. It's quite amazing. Looking back, how did your training in this method maybe influence who you've become as an adult? So my mom is also a teacher. She she didn't start Suzuki until I did, of course. So I think she saw it somewhere or uh, maybe she saw it on TV. I don't know exactly how it came about, but when she had me and she saw it, she said, well, that sounds like it's going to work. I'm going to go ahead and have my daughter do that. So she would take me. So every summer we traveled to different, all these different Suzuki institutes. We did like summer Suzuki camp. And we went to Utah and we went to Idaho and Oregon and California and watched all, all around. I think we went to Minnesota one time, Canada from the international one. And then we went back east one time, maybe Washington, D.C. And that was, growing up, that was always something I always look forward to. It was always family time. And, you know, I didn't really know, especially as a kid, how much I was growing as a musician. Uh, we would return to the same ones every year, and I'd see my friends, and you'd only see them once a year, and then you'd see them there. It's just a sense of this family time and meeting friends and re-meeting friends. And I think that was a big deal in my life. I didn't realize it then, but now I see what a big deal it is because I also now do this with my children. And I look forward to it every year. I can see their growth and their confidence. My mom taking me to those I think really had a big influence on how I want to take my children. And then maybe the the overall sense of accomplishment in Suzuki. Suzuki is big on performing and performing well. And I think that builds, you know, me me as a person, I always feel like my students do really well. And I think that kind of transformed me from child to to parent to teacher. I know that feeling of playing well and feeling good and any crosses over all paths of life. And I know how important that is for your children when they're growing up. So I think that has really shaped me as a person. As I've understand it or read a little bit about it, there seems like there's some interesting connections between Suzuki music instruction and, and character, like actually thinking about kind of character development through music. You're, you're sort of touching on this now and what it feels like to perform yeah. and be competent, but I wonder if you might say a little bit more about that because I think that's such a fascinating link that I, I think a lot of people don't connect. Like, oh, yeah. you're learning an instrument, but building really m- more deeply, yeah, you're building character. 
Dr. Suzuki, you know, he talked about being, being a whole person and having your life is not complete unless you, you know, you have all your feet and all a bunch of different things. Of course, parents always say, well, I want them, my student to play a, an instrument. But I think you're right in, in building character. And I think character can be described as confidence or goal setting or perseverance or teamwork, that kind of thing. You know, all those things that kind of make a, a good whole person in the long run. I just read this really interesting book by this guy named Paul Tuff. And it's called How Children Succeed, Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character. It talks about character and particularly this idea of grit, like being tenacious and and going after something and practicing. And I, I guess I was thinking about that too with discipline of mastering something, like the kind of the internal motivation and the character that it takes to keep to keep right. doing it for 10 right. years. <laughs> right. You know, and sometimes, you know, that's a big role in the parent. And I, I read things about how do we keep our children practicing and when do I tell them that they don't have to practice anymore or when, you know, how much do I struggle over this? And I think, I think a big, you know, Suzuki parents in, in particular, they're starting always like in fifth grade and they're all the classmates are doing it. And it's a grade where you have to go and finish out the whole school year or else it's your grade suffers. This is more three, four, five-year-olds that they don't want to practice one night. So it's up to the parent to really motivate at the beginning and get them to really do this. And then it becomes more of an internal motivation. And, and I see it in my and my own children, of course, I see that my students, but it's, it's particularly neat to see it in your own children, particularly my daughter, who's 10, and I don't have to tell her. Sometimes I have to remind her, especially in the summertime, <laughs> but during the school year, I don't have to tell her to practice anymore. She's done it so many times, she just gets up and she just does it. It's kind of like brushing her teeth, where at the beginning, you know, I had to do a little bit, but I see that, that sense of um, internal motivation already building in her. And I know that that's going to carry over in the rest of her life. If I tell her, you know, you're going to perform this piece, you were asked, you're going to, you've been asked, <laughs> high honor, um, to perform this piece with the orchestra, which was uh, last year she performed. And, and I told her, do you think you can learn it in time? She said, oh, yeah, I can do it. And I personally was a little bit nervous because she didn't have a lot of time to do it. But, you know, the end, the sense of I had to get this done, self-driven, came through and she she nailed it. But I, I really think that had a lot to do with all these past years that she's been playing. Yeah. And I know that's going to carry over in life. You, it's still that kind of thing that's inside, inside children at an early age. They're going to keep that no matter what she ends up doing. Those are good character-building traits. I guess I'm wondering also how this approach whether it's Suzuki specifically or, or music more broadly, how how that part of you has shaped the way that you parent? Um, well, on a, on a very basic level, <laughs> I have to be very organized because I can't be the teacher that's telling all my students that they have to practice all the time and then have my kids not practice and not be successful. <laughs> So I had to be very organized. So, you know, I'm teaching in, in the late afternoon to the evening. So I have to make sure that they get that done. 
every musician parent has to fit that in. And we all know how busy we are. So I know that that's very difficult at times to be able to fit that in. And it's so easy to say, oh, we'll just practice tomorrow. That's not an option. We try not to make it an option. The other thing is, music to me is something that, in my opinion, should be educated from before birth. And I think it's something that every child should be exposed to. And I know it, it improves. I mean, there's data, of course, all this research, research that shows that it's so important for the children and their, and their brain and their development and, you know, on through, like, grades and whatnot. But I also think it's important for them to be exposed to um, concerts and recitals and musicals. And so as a parent, I love all that stuff. And I want to make sure that I give that opportunity to them as much as I can. So I constantly have them go to the Philharmonic concerts and then whatever musicals playing in town and whatever recitals we can go to and whatnot, have them performing everywhere. And to me, I, I think that's not only building, of course, our musical skills, but just to be someone who can sit still. My husband and I went to Cats and we totally hated it. I didn't. I love musicals. I hated cats. But, you know, we sat through the whole thing. We ordered some more drinks. We're like, oh, my God, this is awful. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you're not going to like it. You pay for the ticket. you got to sit there and be polite. And so it's a good quality to have. <laughs> so if I can get my six-year-old to sit through stuff. And they both my kids have been going to the symphony. I played a local symphony. They've been going since they were born, both of them. And I think they've missed two in all their short lives. Um, but there's the kids that I can take to the musical downtown and they can sit through the whole thing and it's not a problem. And I think if parents in general would start it earlier, they'd be happier and not and less frantic or reserved about taking their kids out and, and making them more available, making, making it more available for their children. It's pretty deeply part of like the fabric of your family. It's a daily routine to practice, and then it sounds like pretty frequently to be part of performances or community music events. Kind of an organizing principle, I guess, in your family. I guess if I were to track it for the year, it'd be kind of crazy. <laughs> People might be like, what the heck? Yeah, it's it's nuts. But I, they love it. The kids love it. You know, and they know that they have to dress up, and it's kind of a big deal, and if we have time, we go out afterwards, make it a big family event. We never, we're hardly sitting in front of the TV. We're always out and about. I think it's good for them to see all, see what other people are doing also in the community and support, you know, local arts and all the stuff that people are working hard. I show them, you know, they're working hard. And I show look at these other people. They are also working hard and now we're enjoying what they're doing. I kind of love too that it's something that you all engage in together big thing that happened this year as a parent, as a musical parent was my daughter accompanying my son. So my daughter and she comes to my son on the violin and that was like the biggest mom moment because now we're at the point where we can all play together. That's huge. That's a lot of years of the making. That was really fun for us, for me, knowing that in a few years, you know, we'll be doing harder music and I don't know, playing playing gigs. I, I play with a string quartet and the cellist for my string quartet and I showed him a, 
a video of my daughter. He said, "Oh my gosh, she's gonna she's gonna get me out of a job pretty quick." <laughs> so that's the next thing. I'm gonna have her play some wedding gigs with me. That's gonna be really fun. Hmm. So one of the questions that I I always like to ask parents about is whether becoming a parent has shifted your sense of spirituality or faith. And I wonder if if you want to take a stab at that. Sure. Um, I'm kind of lagging in in the um, church area. I know, like, in the back of my head, I I feel like I should be educating them a little bit more about that. And I think the funniest story (laughs) is I had, I have a friend, I have, like, a group of moms. And it was way back when my daughter was, I don't know, maybe six. I want to say six. I'm just going to throw six out there. And we were going to a play group and it was um, near Christmas. We were going to a, a lady's house who is, shall we say, a little bit more religious than makes most people comfortable. I think I'll say that. And very pushy about it. So I knew, she was a very nice lady, and I knew that we were going to experience something of a, maybe, because she said she didn't have craft and story time. So we all knew what, what was coming. Because it was Christmas time. So I thought, well, this is good. You know, this is going to be great. But, of course, we had not been to church. And my daughter was very quizzical of anything. Where are we going? What's going to happen? So I thought, well, on the drive over, which has 20 minutes, I gave her a little, like, prep talk. And I felt really guilty, but I felt like, okay, all these all these kids are going to be going to church, and they're going to know. <laughs> I don't want it to be totally obvious <laughs> that my kid knows nothing. So I was really, I was prepping her, and I felt kind of silly, but I thought, well, at least, you know, at least we'll know. So then we, on, on the way, I'm telling her about baby Jesus and the story and the sweet wise man and <laughs> giving her up. So she's asking me all these questions, and some of them I didn't even know, <laughs> Anyways, we get there, and this friend of mine, she starts, they did a little craft that she gave, and she started talking about the story. And, of course, she's very good, and she she um, was asking some questions. And, of course, my daughter shot her hand up and was, like, answering all the questions. And, of course, my other friend, who knows me very well, totally called my bluff. She turned to me, and she said, you totally prepped her, huh, before you came, but she knew we didn't go to church. <laughs> And I and I looked at her I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? She goes, Casey, you totally prepped her. You there's no way she knew all these answers. Yes, I totally blew my cover. And after that I was like, Well, she's gonna be she's gonna answer she's gonna ask some questions and I might as well get on the ball with this. And we I've never been real religious. My my parents weren't religious, we never went to church. And my mom always told me that she believed in some Force that was taking, making the world go round, you know, as such. And then I had a friend that and I was going to go to church with every now and then. So, yeah, I've never been really religious, but I play in a lot of church. So people ask me, you know, do you go, do you go to church? I go, uh, yeah, would they pay me to? <sighs> so awful. But <laughs> I'm a musician. That's when I go to church. So would they pay me? I play, and then I go sit and I listen to the sermon. So I I go alone. <laughs> you, you go pretty often. <laughs> I go pretty often, and they pay me to go to church. It sounds awful, but I feel like um, I'm getting something 
personal out of it. And I get, you know, all different, all different religions. I mean, all different Pentecostal. And then I go to the First Presbyterian. And then I have Episcopal, maybe. You know, I get all kinds of different views and all different kinds of pastors. So it's great, depending on who hires me on which Sunday. So um, (laughs) Catholic, I've gone to some Catholic masses. Those are great. So I'm kind of getting a real well-rounded as a musician. You're getting quite a theological education. (laughs) That's right. I feel like I kind of got my foot in every door. And so I feel kind of broad in that that aspect. Um, As far as my children, I haven't done exactly what I thought I was going to do. I send them to BBS, um, Bible camps in the summer. um, And then we always go Christmas Eve because, of course, are being paid Christmas Eve. <laughs> so I make the children and the whole family go Christmas Eve. Um, and then I'd say most Easter's, because I always get paid for Easter as well. So um, most Easter's they will go, but if it's too early or if they're at the cousins for an egg hunt or something that I, you know, I'll say, well, you know, it's okay. As long as we go to, you know, Christmas Eve. So, you know, that's about as religious as we get. It's pretty sad. I think people pay me to go to church, but you know, I might not go if if it weren't I think church attendance would be like broadly increased if people got paid, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. But you know, I I I'm very um, spiritual. I do believe that we are all here for a greater purpose, and um. I always try to follow the golden rule. You do yeah. as, as you have to do it to you. And, you know, I just try to be a really good person. And I talk to the big guy upstairs, probably not the same way everybody else does. Yeah, in, in your own way. You're Sometimes player. I do it while I'm sitting on stage. Please, God, please <laughs> make the conductor not take this too fast. We really don't need to go that fast. You know, I have different <laughs> conversations with, with him. Yeah. I I was curious about asking you that question too because I you know not being a musician I'm so I'm just so curious about like the deeper part of being in a vocation where your central job is to create beauty and to teach other people how to create beauty yeah and I don't I don't know if I'm getting too mushy on you but I mean that just sounds like a spiritual practice too, you know, the act of creating something that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes I may be different for other people, but for me, sometimes I get caught up in what's happening and it could be anything. It could be, um, one of my students will play something and I'll get really emotional to the point where I'm almost crying because I can't believe that this little child in front of me just played this amazing piece and it was so it was so beautiful and moving and sometimes that that'll catch me up and I'll be like wow that was amazing and they feel good and you know that sometimes I'll be on stage and um, in the symphony and we will the accumulation of all you know like 100 players on stage will will really play um, in sync and you can just, it's kind of a weird feeling when it really comes mm-hmm. together, everything really sinks together, and you, and you kind of get this feeling like it all just happened. 
but like something greater than those yes. individuals. Yeah, because we are all individuals playing, you know, our own little parts. And then if you can really like let go of, especially if it's not, if it's really a hard part, then yeah, I'm focused on trying to get all the notes at the right place. But there are some beautiful, and it kind of probably depends also on what type of classical music, if you're more Tchaikovsky or more Beethoven or whatever. And if we're happen to be playing your favorite symphony, you know, that season at that concert. So it kind of depends. But when your favorite piece comes up, it's very, you know, this is going to be you know a great night. We're going to play this piece and it's going to be fabulous. And then, you know, I get caught up in, in the moment of this great line or something. Hmm. And then sometimes, like weddings, no, I never... I never feel that at weddings, <laughs> which is awful. But when you play so many weddings, we do silly things. Like I wonder when, I wonder how long this wedding, this <laughs> this marriage is going to last. Just by, you know, being cynical, being silly, you know, the, the musicians were cackling on the side. Playing beautifully, of course, but, you know, cackling. Um, you have to entertain yourself after. We, we do. And the weddings are just they're so, they're kind of fun because you see all the chaos that's going on, and we're just sitting there waiting, waiting for a moment of <laughs> of music. Um, but yeah, it, it gets mundane sometimes. But the best weddings are when we drive up to uh, Yosemite because it's so gorgeous up there. Those mm. are um, but yeah, yeah, it's kind of uh, creating. Well, we do create beauty. We don't. Musicians don't always create beauty. I must say that. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you just play notes. <laughs> sometimes I just play notes, and sometimes the notes are wrong, and it's not so beauty. <laughs> oh, so besides, um, besides shifting your job, how has becoming a mother changed you? Oh, that's that's a good question. Um, I kind of have to let things go. Well, especially I just have to let my house go. You read it, you read it somewhere, you know, all, all the time. They're only young ones. They don't care what your house looks like. Your true friends don't care, whatever. That, those, that pile of laundry is just going to sit there because he wants me to redo him. You know, and things like that. You just have to let it go. And you know what? I'm going to be late. There are going to be times where I'm going to be mm-hmm. late because <laughs> he, he, he's in the bathroom a little bit longer than I just did. Whatever happens to be or milk spilled everywhere. So you just kind of let it go, and those kind of things never happened, you know, before children. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't late, and I didn't have huge messes to clean up, and the laundry didn't really get backlogged. And so I think being a mother has just, I'm a little more relaxed. I mean, I'm still, I'm, people will tell you I'm very high energy, and I'm never... It's hard for me, like right now, just to sit here on the couch and talk on the phone. I always feel like I should be doing something. I'm very, I'm very high strung. But on the other side, I can, I just have to let things let go. And there's other mm. things that are more important. What do you enjoy most about being a mother? I think I'd have to say I enjoy most <laughs> maybe the little, <laughs> the little things that they say. I wish I would have written more of them down. Gosh, they're funny. The jokes, we're still in a phase of jokes and not not jokes. The ones that make completely no sense. 
<laughs> he is just rolling, and because he's laughing so hard, it makes you giggle. Before you know it, the whole carload of us are just giggling at something that's really not that funny. The things that they say are just, just funny and, and so unexpected. I love that as as a mom hearing those random things. Like tonight, with <laughs> Birdie Four, sister's gone overnight with my mom to the LA Philharmonic, and <laughs> and he comes to me. I put him in his bed. He comes out and he says, "Mom, sister wanted me to sleep in her bed. <laughs> really." She wanted you to. Oh, well then. But we all know that's not exactly how it went down. But you know, the words that they used, she wanted me to. Right. Okay. I don't know. I just love the way they talk and the way they, the little quirks that they have. My son, my son is also in an, in and an off, on and off again, glove phase. Glove as in, Mittens and gloves and fingerless gloves. Um, it's really quite funny. He uh, he turned six back in November, and of course I was so busy with whatever. I'm grabbing, you know. I text my husband, okay, I'm gonna grab another gift. What you know? What should I grab? And he tells me, go to Big Five and get these leather fingerless gloves. And I'm like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, text me the picture. I'll tell you who they are. So of course, I go and I text him the picture, and they're like $16. I'm thinking, whatever. So I, he said, yep, those are the ones. He said he really wanted them. And we've been through the glove phase before. So I was thinking, all right, here we go, another glove phase. And when he opened those, I have never seen his eyes light up. <laughs> they're like the, the wait lifters, but I had to get like the extra small because he's only six like weightlifting gloves and they're like leather palms and they're fingerless and they have like a, a Velcro a strap that goes over the, the back of the hand. He put those on and I tell you, he did not take those off for like three weeks. We had to ask him, <laughs> please, can you wash your hands? And do you really need to sleep with them? And his kindergarten teacher said he's more than welcome to wear them at school as long as he keeps them on and doesn't take them on or off. And I was like, well, that's not going to be a problem. So, yeah, we, <laughs> probably for most of the year, he had those things on and off. Two weeks on, four days off. Three weeks on, a week off. And it was just those kind of things just made me giggle as a parent. And he would practice the piano in his gloves. And he, I wouldn't let him practice the violin with the gloves on, but it, he would put them right by his case. And as soon as he was there, he'd put his gloves back on and run inside. <laughs> crazy. Those quirky things are just so silly as kids. It's just really, really cute. Watching them become who they are. and Yeah. it's He would sleep with them. I mean, he asked me, are they waterproof? No, you cannot take a bath with those. <laughs> just silly. The, the quirks. Oh, it's just so funny. My daughter, she's been waiting three years um, to be tall enough to be in the nutcracker and she talked about it and talked about it. And, you know, you the years go by so quickly. And finally, she's tall enough. So to see as they get older, it's, it's not so much, you know, with my son, I think a little, you know, they go to little things. But as they get older, it's, it's more of a long, it's a longer something with them. 
you know, something hmm. that they're that they're thinking about that's in the back of their head. So it's neat to see them as they get older, whatever they're holding on to. Um, that's kind of neat to to see that as well. What do you hope for for them? You have these incredibly talented, delightful children. What do you What do you hope for for them? Um, I just, I hope that they're happy. You know, you hear all these horrible things about people who are not happy and you tend to, I tend to run into people sometimes that are not happy and, and that scares me. I just, I want them to be whatever they end up doing. I just want them to be happy and content, whether they're, they continue to be musicians or professional musicians or, whatever they want to be. I just want them to be happy because I'm, I feel like I'm really lucky that like my passion and my career have crossed paths. And I don't think everybody gets that. Some people have a, have a career and they don't really like it and they have a a passion, but they can't make it into a career. And that, I think really that in your family, if everything kind of clicks, that makes you happy. And I just, I, I want everybody to be happy, but of course I really want my children to be happy. I hope that they're, they're successful and kind and whatnot, but I really want them to be content in life. That's the end of my interview with Casey Simba Torres. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and I hope you come back next week for another conversation about how parenting changes us, what it teaches us, how it challenges us to go deeper, to learn more, and become more healthy, more whole people as we figure out how to best nurture our children. If you like what you heard, you can keep up with all of the interviews by liking us on Facebook or by subscribing to our newsletter at our website, parentingreimagined.org.